Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another amazing installment of our Thursday afternoon Lunch and Learn. We're going to learn today. I hope you lunch as well, if you'd like to. If you don't want to lunch, that's also okay. It's good to see you all. Uh, I want to thank the amazing folk who are right here, who are attending right now, especially those who turn on their, cam their cameras, because this way it feels like more of a class when we all see each other's faces, and we know that there are people behind those black boxes on the Zoom. So I want to appreciate you. I also want to appreciate all the amazing folk at Yeshiva the Odom Partners Detroit for uh, allowing this and for not allowing this, but encouraging this and make this making this lunch learn happen every week. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it has over 100,000 hours worth of classes. That's over 100,000. And they're adding to it probably about 1,000 a week. So just go feast, feast on the incredible smorgasbord of Torah and Jewish thought available to you at TorahAnytime.com on the app, on the website, and fill your brain with incredible Torah knowledge. I also want to let you know this class is available on uh, partnersdetroit.org learn, where you will find content from both myself and many of the other educators and Partners Detroit even content you can't find on Torah anytime. So again, that's partnersdetroit.org slash learn. Okay, we are going to hop right into it because we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Yisro, right? One of the great parashios of the Torah in which we are going to see the Torah being given to the Jewish people. There's a lot of awesome stuff. Now, speaking of the Torah, the Torah that was given in this week's Parsha, the Torah is an incredible, incredible um matter. It's, it's incredible physical properties to it. Most things in this world have, you know, three dimensions, height, width, length. The Torah has 70 dimensions. Shivim panim la Torah, there are 70 faces to the Torah. Now, of course, by the way, there's not only 70. 70 is just sort of like a stepping stone. 70 represents the, the most that you can have like in nature, so to speak. Seven is nature and then times 10, 10 is like a multiplier number. So 70 is a stepping, a stepping stone, a stepping point for how many pun in the Torah there are, how many faces of the Torah there are. There's infinite wisdom in the Torah because it's an infinite Torah given by an infinite being. And therefore it has infinite ways of understanding that. And to illustrate that matter today, we're gonna to ask one simple question and we're gonna answer it three different ways, okay? And I think each one of these ways are totally different and each one of them is totally inspirational on their own right. So again, today we are going to do an exercise because the Torah was given in this week's Parsha. And we know Shivim Panim La Torah, there are 70 faces to the Torah. We want to give an exercise. We're going to flex that muscle for a moment. And we're going to go through three different ideas, all based on the same question. Three totally different answers that will give us three different inspirations for life. And that is the beauty of Torah. And by the way, feel free to send me an email if you come up with another answer or maybe three more answers to this question. I'm sure there are many more answers than we are going to give today. Okay, so that is the introduction. Um, just as, like, as a way of an, an, an analogy, right? What does that mean the Torah has 70 faces? How could there be 70 faces to the same thing? Well, think about it. I always use the following analogy. Imagine your class goes on a field trip. You have a children's class and you're the teacher, let's say. And your class goes, um, or imagine you were a child in that class. It goes back a little bit of time, that's okay. And imagine the class goes on a field trip and they go to Philadelphia. 
And in Philadelphia, somewhere where they sign the Declaration of Independence Hall, they go to visit Independence Hall. And outside of Independence Hall, I believe there's a statue of Benjamin Franklin. It may have been torn down. I haven't been able to check just recently. But in the event that Benjamin Franklin is still okay, I know that Abraham Lincoln is not kosher. I know he's been pulled down and George Washington is not kosher. But in the event that Ben Franklin is still kosher and he's still up there. So imagine you were to take your class and you were to say, class, I want you to stand in a circle around this statue. Okay, everybody stand in a circle around this statue of Benjamin Franklin. Okay, everyone gets into a circle. And I say to one kid, I say, Bobby, what do you see? And Bobby says, well, I see the side profile. He knows the word side profile. He's an advanced sixth grader, right? I see the side profile of a man and he's holding a walking stick. I can see he's got a, you know, some kind of a coat on and he's got a pocket. Okay, great, great. And uh, Frankie, what do you see? He says, well, I see the front of a man. I, I, I'm looking at a guy, he kind of looks like Benjamin Franklin. He's got those little, uh, the monocle coming off of his eye and he's got a big tri-cornered hat. He's a, uh, you know, a little firm around the pouch, you know, the, 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 the gut. He's, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's friendly, he's friendly looking, friendly looking. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's got his vest. I can see a vest and he's, he's wearing a coat and a vest and uh, Benjamin Franklin. And then you say to the next kid, you say, Mikey, what do you see? And Mikey sees, well, I also see a side profile, um, but I don't really see a stick. He, my side, he's not, he's not really holding a walking stick. Uh, on my side, he's just got his hands and he's got what looks like a, like a string from a kite and a key. I don't really know what that's all about. You're like, no worry, kitty. We'll, we'll get to that eventually in, in physics class. All right. And then you say to the last kid, you say, Paulie, what do you see? So we got Mikey, Frankie, Bobby, Paulie. You say, Paulie, what do you see? And Paulie says, I see the back of a man. That's all I can see. Like I see he's got like that little uh, that little uh, ponytail those colonists used to have. Um, he's got his hair coming out of a tri-cornered hat. I, I just see the back of a man. He's wearing a coat and I can see some uh, britches and some socks and some knickerbockers sticking out underneath. That's all I can see. Now imagine you were to turn to the class and say, okay, which one of you is lying? Which one of you is lying? I asked four people to tell me what they see and I hear four different answers. Some of you must be lying. I wanna to get to the bottom of this. We are not leaving this place. I got all day, I got all day. We're not leaving until someone tells me the truth over here. What's the truth? The answer is it, it, it's, it's all the truth. Like no one actually is lying. No one's, they're all telling you what they see because the statue of Benjamin Franklin is actually a 3D object and they're all around it. The same thing with the Torah. The Torah is much more than a 3D object. The Torah is Torah's Chaim. The Torah is a living, breathing reality. It's, it's God's wisdom in the world. And of course, we have it written down on parchment in a Sefer Torah. And we also have it on a Chumash, right? We got it in the Blue Stone Chumash. And we've got so many different versions and commentaries. And each one of these great giants stood around the Torah. Nachmanides stood and he said what he saw. And Rashi stood and he said, he said what he saw. And the, 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 the Ramban, Nachmanides, and Maimonides, and the Alshech, and the Ralbag, and all these great rabbis, Rav Moshe Feinstein, they all told you what they saw. And it's not like, well, well who's saying the truth? It's all the truth. And guess what? You also have a face of the Torah. There's one perspective of the Torah. There's somewhere that you are standing and you have the ability to see the Torah that nobody else has. 
So Machmanides, Nachmanides, the Ramban, and Maimonides, the Rambam, and Rashi, and the Arachayim, and the, you know, the, the so many commentaries, like I said, the Alshech and the Torah, and they all stood all around the Torah and they told you what they saw. But there's one place where you can stand. That's right, you, Susan, and you, Hi, and you, Harry, and you, Flo, and you, Rivka, and you, Marilyn, you all can stand where you're standing and you look at the Torah and I say to you, tell me, what do you see? Because what you see, nobody else might see. And maybe in the history of humanity, nobody's ever seen this before. That's why we daven on Shabbos. On Shabbos in our davening, we say, sanctify us with your mitzvahs, and give us our chalek, our portion in the Torah. There's a piece of the Torah that belongs to you. And there's a place that you stand, that from where you look at the Torah, nobody else can see that. And we need your Torah. We need your Torah. So today, to illustrate this beautiful idea, today, this week's partial, we learned about the giving of the Torah. I'm going to ask a question. We're going to have three answers. Two answers I heard from my rabbis. One answer is the one I just looked at the Torah. And it's from my perspective. It might be wrong. That's okay. But we should always be seeking to espouse and understand the Torah from your perspective. We're all standing around this incredible chachmas Hashem, this wisdom of God, and it's, it's great to look at what the Rashi saw and what the Rambam saw and what the Ramban saw and so on and so forth. But what do you see? Just read the Torah. What do you see? What questions does it bring up in you? What answers does it bring up in you? Maybe you saw somebody else's question. You're like, wow, you were so inspired by that question, but you came up with your own answer. That's beautiful too. Okay, so let's get to it. That was just the intro. That was just the intro. Now we're gonna get to the question. The question is like this. This week's part is called Yisro. Yisro, also known as Jethro. Jethro was the father-in-law of Moshe. And when Moshe was going back down to Egypt to go save the Jewish people, he was heading down to Egypt with his wife and his two children. And then he was like, wait, 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 wait a second. I'm going back into the inferno. I'm going back into Egypt where people are suffering horrifically. I have to go because I got to go redeem the people. I don't got to bring my wife and kids into this. I mean, this is, I mean, what, what Moshe was doing when he went back into Egypt, like Moshe was going back into Germany in the middle of the Holocaust, right? I mean, there was a Holocaust going on. The Egyptians were murdering Jewish babies left and right. They were murdering Jewish slaves left and right. The people were in backbreaking slave labor, being beaten every day. And Moshe's going back in there. And then he's before he gets back to Egypt, he's like, wait, 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 wait a second. Before, before I get in there, maybe I don't want to be bringing my wife and kids. This is the, 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 the movie of what's going on in Egypt is rated R, you know, for extreme violence, depravity, you know, gore, blood. Maybe I shouldn't bring my kids into this movie. It's not rated for them. So he sends his wife and kids back to his father-in-law to Jethro. And he says, you guys will join me when we get out of this. Okay. After this, after the scary parts of the movie, you can come for the happy ending. Okay. So they go back. And then finally in this week's Parsha, they come back to join Moshe Rabbeinu. And we hear the following. So it's Parsha's 
by Yis, uh, it's Yisro. And the following is how it opens up. By Yishma Yisro, Kohen Midyon, Chosein Moshe, as Kol Asher HaSolokim LeMoshe Lamo. Yisro, the priest of Midyon, the father-in-law of Moses, heard all that Hashem had done to Moshe and to the Jewish people, his nation. Ki Otsi Hashem es Amo Yisro because Hashem had taken his people out of Egypt. And Yisro took Sipora, the wife of Moshe, and he brings her back to Moshe. And he joins them with the Jewish people. And Moshe shows incredible, incredible honor to Yisro. And, excuse me, he shows incredible honor to his father-in-law Yisro and treats him with enormous accord and respect. And uh, that's the beginning of this week's parasha. Now, says Rashi. Rashi wasn't Yisrael Tzipporah's father-in-law? No, Yisrael, not, not, not Yisrael. Yeah, okay. All righty, now, says the first Rashi in this week's parsha, Vayishma Yisrael, and Yisrael heard, Mashmua Shama Uba. What exactly did he hear that made Yisrael hop on his donkey and head on over, right? Saddle up, guys, we're heading back. What did he hear, says uh, Rashi, quoting the Midrash? Krias Yamsuf Umilchames Amalek, he heard about the splitting of the sea and the war with Amalek. That is Rashi quoting the Mechilta as well as the Talmud in Tractate Zivachim, page 115, 116a. Okay, not that I know this stuff by heart, but Rashi himself tells us the source in parentheses. Okay, I'm good at reading the parentheses. Alrighty, now, there we go. That's right, that's right. As High Saffron says, I'm acting hard. I'm like, yeah, I can read parentheses. That's one of my great skills. Okay, good, good. I don't have a lot of skills, but I can read parentheses. Okay, now, ladies and gentlemen, I can understand that Yisro here is about the splitting of the sea. And he's like, wow, saddle up. We're heading over there, right? That's amazing. Like this Jewish God, he just encouraged the entire might of the Egyptian army. Somehow he persuaded them to go into the water. I mean, think about this. Think about this amazing idea. The Egyptians are chasing after the Jewish people. Now, mind you, the Egyptians have just been through 10 horrific plagues. Shall I enumerate them? I have a feeling you know them, but I'm going to do it anyway. Blood. Yeah, that's right. Frogs, pest, uh, lice, wild animals, wild animals, pestilence, boils, uh, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. And High's like, wow, Rabbi, acting hard. Yes, you know the 10 plagues. Yeah, that's right, I do. It's one of my other skills. I know the 10 plagues. Okay, so, <laughs> so uh, they just went through 10 crazy plagues culminating with death of the firstborn in which they begged the Jewish people, get out of our country. They begged the Jewish people, please leave. A week later, they get this crazy bug in their head. Oh, wait, 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 we can get them back. We can go chase after them. I think they're stuck over there. Nebuchim Ba'aretz. They're stuck over there. There's like this one idol. All the idols of the Egyptians died mysteriously on the night of the death of the firstborn, right? Hashem struck down all the idols in Egypt. So they, they all woke up the next morning decapitated. Well, they didn't really wake up because they were idols. They were never awake in the first place. But not only did all their firstborns die, but literally all their idols are like broken on the floor, right? Except for one, bottle of foam, right? And they're like, oh, wow, maybe Balzaphone. Maybe Balzaphone is more powerful than the Jewish God. And that's why the Jews are stuck there. So let's go chase them. And they 
get their entire army ready, right? They psych up their entire army. They take all their wealth with them because, again, that's how they used to fight the Egyptians. They would take all their wealth with them. This way, if they, if they didn't win, they would lose everything. So they really would fight so hard because they were protecting every bit, every bit of their property. So they go, and they're ready to fight, and they're, they're jumping, they're running after the Israelites. And then just as they're about to get them, the Israelites are stuck. There's a raging water behind them. There's deserts on both sides with wild animals. And just when the Egyptians are coming in for the kill, the most insane miracle ever happens. The entire ocean just splits into 12 sections, right? There was, I don't know if you guys know this, but there was 12 sections, one for each tribe, right? Everyone stayed in their own lane. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Stay in your lane. So everyone stayed in their own lane. There was 12 different tunnels opened up in the water and the water just splits and each tribe starts calmly going through. And miraculously, the floor turned into a beautiful, like a marble floor. So they didn't have to walk through the muck that would normally be at the bottom of an ocean. And the Egyptians, after having suffered so much under the hand of God, Instead of saying, okay, this is weird. Let's turn around and go back, right? Just, just stay away. This has, there's no good ending for us in this story. No, no, but that's not what the Egyptians do. Hashem hardens their heart and they say, yeah, let's go into the middle of that ocean because we're probably going to get the Jews there. The same God that split the sea for the Jews. You think he's going to let you kill his people? He just gave you 10 plagues and he just made this insane miracle where the entire sea split into 12 Beautiful lanes with fruit trees on the side and marble flooring. And you're going to say, this is rational for us to run into this place because that's probably God wants us to kill his people in this incredible, miraculous place that he just created for them. But they do it. They go in. And of course, Hashem destroys them. And them and all their wealth is spit out of the ocean and the Jewish people can see it and be peaceful and assured they are free. Now, if you are a fair weather fan, right? There are certain fans that depending on the season, they, they are fans of different teams, right? For example, for example, High Saffron. <laughs> High Saffron used to be a Tigers fan. The Tigers weren't doing so well. So he just started being fans of the, I think he's a Yankees fan. Right? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. High is a diehard fan of the Tigers. He's, looking, he's turning off his camera. He's like, I'm out of here. Right? Okay. High is a diehard fan of the Tigers, no matter what. But, but there are those players like, oh, yeah, but no, 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 no. I was always really, you used, used to be a Yankee fan for so many years. And then suddenly Boston is ascendant. And you're like, no, no, no. I, I'm a Boston fan. My father was from Boston. Don't you? No, I've, I've, I've always been a fan of Boston. I've always been a fan of the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. And then two years later, who are you a fan of right now? Are you a fan of Boston or the Buccaneers? Uh, Tampa Bay. What, what's going on with me? Like, we're, we're, there's, you have fair weather fans that just go to the winning team. So I can understand Yistro's like, wow, that Jewish God, he has got the SmackDown moves, right? Boom, 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 shakalaka, KT, not, not, not TKO, not technical knockout, just KO, knockout. He knocked out those Egyptians. I'm a big fan of that Jewish God. He's got it going on. He's cool. He's got the moves. Yo, he has got the moves. It's time for me to be a fan of the Jews. I'm going to go join the Jewish people. I get that. That makes sense that Yisrael would hear about the splitting of the sea and say, like, I think I want to be on that team. Like, that's the safe team. That's where I want to be. What about the, the war with Amalek? What about the war with Amalek? 
why would you want to join the Jewish people because you heard about the war with Amalek? Now, granted, the Jews won that war in the end. But the war with Amalek was really, if you really want to understand, like on a, on a spiritual perspective, what was going on over there, that was just a portend. That was a little taste of what was going to follow with the Jewish people for all of history. We are the most, we are the most oppressed nation in human history. Let me say it again. We are the most oppressed nation in human history. Right now in America, right? Right now in America, I'm sure you know, there are people in the streets marching all day and all night for Black Lives Matter, right? Which is true, Black Lives do matter, whatever, whatever that means. But I'll tell you this much, were Blacks the most, um, the, the victims of the most hate crimes in America this past year? Nope, that would be Jews. Even though we're way smaller a percentage of the population, Blacks make up about 13% of the American population. Jews make up a little bit less than 3% or maybe about 3%. We were the most, we were the victims of the most hate crimes last year and the year before and the year before and the year before and the year before. Every year, every year, Jews are the victims of the most hate crimes in America. Now, we also were the people who lost 6 million people. The real number is probably closer to 7.5 million people in the Holocaust. But it wasn't just that. We also had the Crusades. We had the pogroms. I mean, I could sit here and read to you a litany of horrific, horrific things that we've been through as the Jewish people. Now, when did violent anti-Semitism start? So it really depends on how you understand it. There's, there's a few different ways of looking at it. One opinion would say the actual slavery in Egypt, that was the first form of, of anti-Semitism. As a matter of fact, fascinatingly, the very first time we were called a nation, we were a family, right? We came down to Egypt, we were a family. Yaakov, Ubeso, Ba'u, Mitzrayma. Yaakov and his family, they came to Egypt. When was the very first time ever that we are described as a nation? It's in Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. A new king arose upon Egypt that did not know, did not know Yosef, Joseph. And he said to his people, He said, Behold, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. That was the very first time we were called a nation, a people. And what were the next words out of his mouth? Let's deal shrewdly with him. Let's come up with a solution for the Jewish problem. Right? Let's deal shrewdly. Let's find a, a solution for this Jewish problem because there's too many of them. And maybe in the event of war, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us and rise up and leave the land. And what do they do? So they set taskmasters on him to oppress them with forced labor in their cities. Boom. That's the first time we're called a nation. So from the very, very first time we're called a nation, which is by, by Pharaoh, the oppression and the violence begins. Literally, literally. Not even a minute goes from the time that we are called a nation to the time that they're coming up with the first of the final solutions. If you want to understand, though, that we only became a people when we were led out of Egypt, that we were just a cohort of slaves in Egypt, and we get out of Egypt, then what's the first form of real violence against us? It's Amalek. Let's remember the story of Amalek. What were we doing wrong to deserve the wrath of Amalek? 
Who were we bothering? Who were we oppressing? Were we stealing anybody's money and hiding it under our floorboards? We were in the desert. We were not bothering anybody. We were literally sitting in the desert, not bothering anybody. What are they coming to attack us for? What does that mean? Oh, okay. We were sitting in the desert and, and they came and they started attacking us. Why would I want to join the Jewish people if that's what their, their life is going to be like? Yisro, Jethro, he sees that the Israelites are attacked and he says, hmm, I want to join that people. Now, again, they, they happened to win the war. Like we won the war with Amalek. It wasn't like some stunning victory. We won the war. People came out of nowhere. We were sitting all by ourselves in the desert and they just came out of nowhere to attack us and massacre us and commit genocide. And we weren't bothering anybody. How could Yisro see that and say, ha, oh, I want to join those people. Again, if you see this splitting in the sea, I can understand. I want to join those people. They got some cool moves, right? They're, they're the victors. I'm a fair weather fan. I want to be on that team. But to see the, the, the fight of Amalek and to see a nation that was going to face, it was just, again, that, that was a sampling of what we were going to go through. And, and indeed, for all of our history, we go through this, the pain and the suffering and the anti-Semitism. Why do you want to saddle up and join those people? Tevye's trying to get away, right? Tevye's like, pick somebody else. He wants to get away from his Judaism. At least all his kids do. He doesn't say it so much, but Tevye's trying to get away. And, and Yisro's trying to come and join that. So what's going on? So that is the question, and we are going to field three different answers. Idea number one. Imagine the following scenario. Imagine you have a row of shops. Okay, you have a row of shops, like in the old days before everything was sold online and there was no more brick and mortar. You might remember there was this thing called like a shopping center, right? And you would go there and have a lot of parking lots and have a lot of spots in front of it. And there would be like a cleaners and there would be a shoe store and there would be, you know, a, a dollar store and all kinds of, you know, and there would be, I don't know, maybe a tailor, whatever it was. There used to be this thing called like a strip mall and there was just all kinds of stores there and people would buy stuff. I know it's like, you can read about it in the museums. Now, imagine, so you have a strip mall and imagine it's got like, a, again, it's got, a, it's got a, a drug store at the end cap and then it's got a, a shoe store and it's got a tailor and it's got the neighborhood cleaners and it's got a, a, a bridles shop and it's got a, you know, a little law office that has like a little, a little storefront and it's, you know, it's got a jeweler, whatever it is, okay? Now, in the middle of that strip mall, it's just like a tailor, but somehow that tailor's storefront is being broken into like every week, once a week, once every two weeks, right? I imagine that. Now what you would start thinking is like, hmm, what's going on? What do these thieves know that I don't know? Because usually, what does a tailor have in a tailor shop? Just a bunch of old clothing, right? Some, some new clothing, right? I mean, literally, it's like, that's the last store you want to steal from. Because if you walk out of a tailor store with bags full of clothing, very likely none of it's going to fit you. 
And a lot of it is used clothing. You know, we go to the tailor, we put on a little weight, we go to the tailor, can you take out my pants? We lose a little weight, we go to the tailor, can you put in my pants? Like, you, do you really want to steal my pants from the tailor? Like, why, why are people breaking into the tailor shop all the time? But it happens once, it happens twice, it happens three times. At a certain point, you start saying, there's something going on here. Maybe this tailor shop isn't just a tailor shop. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe either this tailor is hiding, I don't know, bars of gold. Uh, he's got bullion in the back. Maybe the tailor is really not just selling, uh, fixing your clothing, but fixing your mood with some kind of mind altering illegal substances, right? And he'll give you, he'll, he'll take in your pants and, and give you a little bit of crystal meth <laughs> for the right price. Who knows? Like maybe, maybe I mean, it's weird. Otherwise, why is why are people breaking into to a tailor shop? There's nothing of value in there. But if people keep breaking into the tailor shop, maybe there's something of value there. I don't know what it is, but clearly people are putting, and especially imagine the tailor shop. Every time people break into a store, he puts up a more sophisticated alarm system. But people keep breaking in. And eventually the tailor shop, he's got a, an armed guard in front of the door all day long, 24 seven, people are still breaking in. You're like, something ain't right over here. I don't know what's going on in that tailor shop, but I know that he's doing more than taking in pants and making hems for dresses and then maybe adding a little dart to this shirt. Something is going on. No tailor shop has 24 hour armed guards. I don't know what's going on there, but there's something of value, legal or illegal, whatever's going, there's something going on in that tailor shop. When I was in rabbinical school, when I was in yeshiva in Shar Yashiv. So today, Shar Yashiv Institute is a beautiful, beautiful yeshiva in, uh, in, in, in Lawrence, New York. And it's on a beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful campus right off the 878 highway. Beautiful campus, beautiful. When I was learning there, it was not in a, uh, a great neighborhood. It was actually in a, uh, a really, really, really rough and tumble neighborhood. Um, there was, I was in a dorm and my dorm room was adjacent to a school. And one morning the police were working really quickly to remove the dead body that was right outside the dorm, which was also right outside the school because the kids were gonna start showing up to school. And they had one of the dead bodies with like the tape around it. And they would take, yeah, there was like literally a, a dead body in front of my dorm. And then I remember one night we came out after evening services out of yeshiva and there was literally, as, as we walk out of the building, there's a man, there's like eight cop cars there. And there's like a guy up on the wall. Some guy was walking around through the neighborhood with a garbage bag and a shotgun. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it was that kind of neighborhood, right? I mean, there was literally, there was literally a crack house. There was like, another. I, I was in one dorm. There was another dorm. There was a 1525 Central Avenue dorm. There was a 1513 Central Avenue dorm. I was in the 1513. In the 1525, there was literally like a parking lot and then a crack house, like literally. It, it, was, it was not a good neighborhood. And we were there for a long time, a very, 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 very long time, right? Now, there was a church that was on our block. And the pastor and the, and the pastor's wife both drove late, you know, brand new Mercedes, which is okay. That's not a problem. It was a very small church. It was like a storefront church. It wasn't like a very, very big church. But there was always armed guards in front of the church, like always, like two or three of them standing there with like big yellow vests saying security. They were dressed very well. They were dressed very, very, very well. They were like, 
you know, people like they were dressed well, they would wear, everyone was wearing suits, but it's, here was something bizarre about it. Like, why do you have a church that has like three or two armed guards outside wearing security vests? Like who's trying to come in? And then there was, there was um, late night. I remember late at night, some guys were like raiding the kitchen and the kitchen was across the street, a few stories up, it was the third story. And they could, they were, they were like, they heard some noise outside and, um, and they looked down and it was literally like two, three o'clock in the morning. And in front of the church, there was like these cars pulling up. There was um, security guards at two o'clock in the morning. There was no worshipers there, but there was a lot of people there and they had like dogs like on leashes. And then there was like a transferring of duffel bags. There was like duffel bags moving from like cars to trunks to the other car. And it, it, I don't know what they were transferring. Maybe there were there was a lot of wafers for their um, for their for their for their uh, mass. You know what I'm saying, or maybe some of the sacrament and wine. I don't know what was in those duffel bags, but I can tell you that there was a it was two o'clock in the morning, and there was armed guards there, like not 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 like security guards, but like belonging to the church, and there were literally um, yeah there there was literally like duffel bags of stuff being moved from one car to the other. So when you see all the security you start wondering maybe something is going on over here that there's something of value again, whether it's legal value or illegal value, there's probably something here. Says Yisro. I look at the Jewish people and the Jewish people, they're such victims of hatred and violence. And I could say maybe they're just really unlucky. Or I could say that it's, it's not the bad luck that's bringing all this violence and pain upon us. It's some kind of incredible gift that we have that somehow other people sense and they're coming after us for what it represents in the world. There must be this incredible treasure to the Jewish people. And it's a treasure that people will either steal or kill us so that we shouldn't have it and they have it. There's something of value here. I don't know exactly what it is, but if they just keep getting attacked all the time, it must mean there's something of value here. The Talmud says, by the way, Har Sinai, the Mount Sinai, which is again in this week's Parsha. The Jewish people come to Har Sinai. Why is the mountain called Har Sinai. What does the word Sinai mean? And the Talmud says, Har Shayarda Sina Laolam. It's the mountain through which hatred came down to the world, which means that deep down, deep down in the psyche of the nations around us who do not have this incredible relationship with God, who do not have our blessed Torah, Deep down, they recognize that what we have is something valuable. And because of that, they hate us because they don't have what we have. And they could work to get it. We're open for business. You want to join the Jewish people, you could join the Jewish people. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. So I have one, one of two choices. I see somebody who worked really, 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 really hard in life. Let's say I see this person who's just working hard and he's successful. And what do I do? I like to sit back on my couch and watch Netflix or play, you know, my, my Xbox 360 
all day. I like playing Halo 3 and sometimes I like playing Halo 4 and sometimes I like playing Minecraft and sometimes I like playing um, whatever that other game is called. I don't know, whatever, where people have to like go into these little arenas and shoot each other. Fortnite, Fortnite, yeah. So I'm, I love playing video games. And my neighbor, he likes going to work and he works really hard. And at night he goes to college and he studies really hard and then he gets a better job because he gets a degree and he's making more money. And I see him advancing and guess where I am? I'm still on my couch. So I could say, wow, look at this guy. This guy's doing it right. Let me try to do the same. Or, or I could just say, let me take out my wrath on him. Look at that guy. Who does he think he is? Oh, hard work, hard work. He just, he, it's just his, it's his, it's his inborn privilege. You know, it's a, he, he, he's got something that I have to take away from him. I have to level the playing field. I have to level the playing field. It's not fair. Why does he get so much and I get so little? I'm going to take it away from him. I'm going to come after him with my guns, my power, whatever power I can muster. I'll find all the rest of us Fortnite players who've been playing Fortnite for so long and Xbox and Minecraft. And we're all going to take away whatever that guy had who worked so hard. When you see others that have something that you don't have, there's two things that you can do. You can work hard to get it or you can attack him, but you don't like the imbalance. Har Sinai is called Har Sinai because hatred came down to the world when we had this special relationship with God that we earned through incredible sacrifice and dedication. But other nations didn't have it and they hate us for it. When Yisro sees that the Jewish people are constantly being attacked and he sees how the Egyptians attacked them. And remember the Jews only brought goodness to Egypt. We stopped their famine. We brought them wealth and success. We only did good for Egypt, but yet they came after us. And the Amalekites, we were in the middle of the desert. We weren't bothering anybody. They came after us. Yisro says, I don't know what's in their treasure box, but in the back of that tailor shop, there's a safe with something incredibly valuable. And that's why people keep coming for it. And I want to be part of that. So amazingly, yes, Yisro joins us because he sees the splitting of the sea and the incredible miracles that God brings on our behalf. But Yisro also comes because he sees the anti-Semitism and the hatred of the people. The Egyptians and the Amalekites and everybody throughout history, the Spanish and the English. The English also expelled us, by the way. You don't know that, but they did. Yeah, and the French, they expelled us too. And the Hungarians, they expelled us too. And the Germans, they expelled us too. Everybody's coming after us. They must have something of value. I'm going to find out what it is. And I want to be part of that. That is answer number one. Tevya. Tevya, the milkman, right? He looks at the world and he says, Oh, God, I know, I know we're the chosen people, but can you choose somebody else for once? No. You know why we keep getting targeted? Because we have something so special. We're not just a tailor shop. We've got an incredible treasure inside of us. We have the Torah inside of us. And what has that given us? So much success on the world plane, both in terms of ethics and morality, but also in terms of every avenue of success that we have. And they're going to attack us for it. They're going to attack us for it. They are right, right now. And even though we have a country in, 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 in Eretz Yisrael that has three 
Arab judges on the Supreme Court, and, 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 and almost a, a sixth of the Knesset is made up of Arabs. They call us apartheid. They always want to demoralize us and come after us because they want what's really deep inside, but they don't want to work for it. They don't want to put in the effort for it. They just want to take it. They want to get the moral high ground without having to get the moral high ground. So the best way you can do it is drag the other person down. Says Yisro, everybody's trying to drag these people down. They must have the treasure and I want in. Okay, that is idea number one. Idea number two. Yisro heard of two things and came to the Jewish people. The war with Amalek and the fight of, sorry, the, the, the splitting of the sea and the war of Amalek. How much time elapsed between the splitting of the sea and the war with Amalek? Less than a month. Now, when the sea split, there was an incredible miracle. The Medrash tells us that when the sea split, every body of water in the world split. If you were at home eating chicken soup, your chicken soup split. And you'd be like, oh, wow. Didn't expect to see that happen in my chicken soup today. Where did the matzo ball go? To the right, to the left? That's a different question. A lot of debate about that in rabbinical literature. Where did the matzo ball go? To the right or the left? Who's right? Okay. Anyway, the bottom line is if you were eating chicken soup, your chicken soup split. And you looked outside of the pond, right outside your window, and the pond split. And every body of ocean and the, every body of water in the world split. Shamu amim yir gazun chilachaz yoshvei palashes, says the Jewish people in the song of Az Yashir. Shamu amim yir gazun, the nations heard and they trembled in fear. Chilachaz yoshvei palashes, panic seized those in Philistine. The nations of the world were aware of what God did for us. There was no TV in those days. There was no cable channels. There was no BBC and no CNN and no Fox News. But normally if something happened on one end of the world, the other people had no idea. But here, everybody knew what was happening to the Jewish people. And they were fearful. Shavu amim yir gazun. Nations heard and they trembled. And guess what happened though? Less than a month later, a nation is coming to attack us. How could it be? Did you not hear? M Mr. Amalek, hold on a second. Okay, you want to fight, we'll fight with you in a moment. But before you fight, do you know what we just did? Right? We just did 10 plagues. And then after that, we had like, we had like the Space Force, you know, like laser coming out of the sky and just like decimating an entire Egyptian army. Do you really want to fight us? I know it's the plane of tomorrow. Yeah. The Space Force, right? Did you, you saw what happened? This whole entire army came to fight us and a laser came out of heaven and knocked them out. Boom, incinerated them. Okay, it was a little different. There was a sea that split and we all came in. You know about that. Are you, are you sure you want to attack us? Are you sure about that? Maybe you want to reconsider. I'm going to give you 10 minutes to think about this, okay? We're not going to engage you in a war right now. You guys can retreat and we'll be comfortable and we'll even find a way for you to save face. But are you sure you want to attack the Jewish people? You saw what happened to the Egyptians less than a month ago. How could it be? How could it be that in less than a month, people go from trembling in fear to let's go attack the Jews? And the answer is, 
such an important, important lesson in life. Inspiration is incredibly, incredibly fleeting. Inspiration is very powerful. We have emotions and we have intellect. Emotions has a plus and a minus, a con and a pro. And intellect has a plus and a minus. The plus and the minus of intellect is that it is methodical and it's slow and it can work through an issue and it can really delve down to the bottom of an issue and come out with a proper plan. The problem with intellect, and it's not strong on its own. Then you have emotion. Emotion is incredibly incapable of really getting to a place that's thoughtful and rational. Emotion is pure, pure feelings, whatever I'm feeling in the moment, that's what emotion is. So the, the, the negative side, the con of emotion is that it is so, so unsophisticated. You know, if, if someone takes, you see a little child, right? You go to a child and a child is in the middle of eating a popsicle, but you realize, oh my gosh, that popsicle has arsenic in it. Now, why do you have popsicles with arsenic in it in your house? That's a different question. We can talk about that. It's okay. It's not child abuse. Do not call CPS, right? But you realize that your child's about to eat a part of popsicle with arsenic in it. So you go to the child and you take away the popsicle. The popsicle, the kid looks at you, oh my God, what are you doing? He's like, crying, I hate you. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Blah, blah, blah. This, this popsicle is not good for you. Okay, let, let's, let's change it. Arsenic's a little bit violent. You get a, an alert on your phone that, 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 you know, good humor is recalling all of their strawberry shortcake ice cream pops because they all have salmonella, okay? And you're, you're like, oh my gosh, my kid, I just I just gave him one. You run over your kid, you're like, bubble, I need that ice cream back. Like, no, 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 it wasn't my ice cream, my ice cream. You're like, no, you, you gotta get the ice cream back. And the kid's like, no, 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 and starts looking at so you. You go over to the kid and you take away the ice cream. You don't have another ice cream in the house. You're gonna have to go buy another one later. But like, the kid starts crying. I hate you, I hate you, you're so, 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 so bad. That's emotion, what are you gonna do? Emotion is so strong. You try to explain to the kid, this thing has, a disease in it called salmonella. If you eat this entire ice cream bar, you're gonna spend the next three days in utter pain, right? You can't talk to a kid. He's feeling emotion. Emotion is so powerful, but it's also so incredibly not thought out, so not rational. Now, a person can be inspired by what they see or what they hear, and it's so powerful, but it is so fleeting because emotion by definition is whatever you're feeling right now. I remember I lived in New York during 9-11. And 9-11, after 9-11, it was, it, the whole city was devastated as you can imagine. I mean, the city was, I, I, I stood on the roof of my rabbinical school and I watched the buildings burn, right? I watched the Twin Towers burn from the, from the roof of my yeshiva. And after that, the whole city was just like dazed into silence. And then for like, for like three days, people were just like nice to each other. You know, you got to a, like a, a four-way stop sign and they were like, no, 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 you go. No, 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 you go. No, 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 you go. You know, like, everyone was like kind. They were like in, 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 in a shopping center and there was like one spot left. And people were like, no, no, you, you take the spot. You take the spot. People were kind. People were friendly. People were nice. There was no acrimony. And then about three days later, we just went back to being New Yorkers. Three days later, where did all that inspiration go? Where did all the love go? Where did all the empathy go? Where did all the compassion go? The answer is emotion is fleeting. It's powerful, but it's so fleeting. 
There's a Pasuk in Shira Shirim, in Song of Songs, Parag Bey's Pasuk Zion. Song of Songs 2 7. Hishpati Eschem Venos Yerushalayim Bitzvaos O Bayalos Hasadeh. I adjure you, O maidens of Jerusalem, by gazelles or by hinds of the field. Do not wake or rouse love until it pleases. That's the exact translation of the verse. And again, this, the, book, the book of Shir Hashirim is a very deep Kabbalistic book. The love of the Jewish people for the nation, for, for, for God, and this, this description of it goes back and forth in its conversation. But this particular part, the sages explain to us, one of the commentaries explains, is imta'iru imta'oru eshava, when you have an inspiration of love, put it into a chafetz, put it into a thing, put it into a deed, do something about it. You go to a class and you're inspired. You're like, wow, that was an amazing class. Wow, so powerful, so amazing. Do something about it immediately. Make a micro change to your life immediately. Do a physical act to lock in that inspiration because if not, the inspiration will be gone five minutes later, 10 minutes later. If you arouse the love, if you arouse the emotion, put it into a chafetz, do something about it because otherwise emotion is so fleeting. Says Yisro, if you could have the whole world is gripped in fear, the emotion of, wow, the God of the Israelites is the real deal, and we should not attack the Jews. We should leave them be. We should be kind to them. Whoa, but then a month later, less than a month later, they're going to attack the Jewish people. What does that tell me? That tells me that if you don't take action, all your inspiration will fly away. So right now, I'm inspired to take action because I realize how fruitless inspiration without action is, I'm going to get up right now and go join the Jewish people. Right now, right now. Not wasting that. Saddle up. We're out of here. You go put gas in the car. I'll gather the suitcases. Boom. We're out of here. Because I don't want to happen to me what happened to those Amalekites who were trembling in fear just a little while ago, but now they're going to attack the Jewish people. That's how fast inspiration evaporates. If I'm inspired right now, says Yisro, because I see that you could have a, a, a splitting of the sea, yet less than a month later, all that inspiration, all that fear, all that re respect that people have for the Jews evaporates, and the nation of Amalek comes to attack them, I'm going to join the Jewish people right now, because I'm inspired right now, because I realize how fleeting inspiration is. I don't want it to fall away. That is idea number two. And now, my friends, comes idea number three, because we're all standing around this beautiful multiple-dimensional Torah, this living Torah, and we all see different things in the Torah, because Shiv and Panama Torah. So I'd like to share with you an idea. This is my own. You have every right in the world to dingzach with it, which is Yiddish for, like, you know, come up with any kind of disagreement. You can email me. My email is lburnham at partnersdetroit.org, lburnham at partnersdetroit.org, High Saffron will tap in. And by the way, for any of you guys who watch the videos, I mentioned High Saffron's name about a thousand times every class. It's because he's a he's a close dear friend of mine and I could pick on him a little bit and he won't, uh, 
I know he's not going to, you know, just a little bit. Exactly. When I said he was not a Tiger fan anymore, that was like, that, that was bad. He just turned off his camera. Like, but you know, I, I can pick on him a little bit and he, and he helped me out with the class, but there, there are other people in this class besides high Stafford. People must be watching. They're like, I think he only has one person in the class every week. And then he pretends like there's other people there, but no, there are other people. Please feel free to join us by the way. If you email me, I can also send you uh, a link to come to join our actual live zoom class every Thursday at noon. Okay. Now, Idea number three, and again, if you don't like this idea, fight with me about it. Send me an email. Tell me why I'm wrong. Idea number three is as follows. There is a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. It was written by a woman named Amy Chu, or Chua, I believe. Amy Chu, maybe. She is a professor at Harvard University. I believe, or maybe Yale, maybe Yale, okay? Maybe Yale. She's a professor at definitely one of the Ivy League schools. And she is a, um, she's, she's either Chinese or Japanese or Korean. She's, she's from one of the East Asian countries. And she was very, very, very difficult on her children, right? And, uh, you know, people used to criticize her for it. And she wrote a book, like, describing what it, what it took out of her to be this tiger mom. A tiger mom means that she was, I mean, I actually heard an interview recently with her where she was being interviewed. It was exhausting for her to be a tiger mom too. I mean, she demanded incredible perfection out of her kids. If her kids got an 87, I mean, they'd have to like write essays or whatever it is, like just like, not even because the teacher required them. American teachers, you get an 87, they say, wow, you're amazing. That's the best you could do, right? <laughs> and she's like, 87, you can do 107. I know you, you're my child, right? Again, like, like, it's, it's, like so like she was really, she was, and her kids had to each take um, lessons and learn a, uh, a classical instrument. And they, they had all kinds of, you know, um, sports and lacrosse, and whatever it was. Like she was like the ultimate like tiger mom. But both of her kids right now are extraordinarily successful people. I forgot what they both do. She has, she had, she had, I believe she had two daughters and I don't know. And, and she went through some difficulties with those kids because she pushed them so hard. But right now, both of her kids are like super achievers. They both have degrees themselves from Ivy League schools, and they're both super successful people. There we go. Someone I put it in. Amy Chua graduated from Harvard and teaches at Yale, and it's called the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Okay, good. Not Tiger Mom, Tiger Mother. That's right. Mom is a diminutive word. We don't use that in our house, do we? Write it down 100,000 times. Mother, mother, mother. Not mom, not mom. We don't use that. That's it. Okay, anyway. Um, so here's an idea. Why did Amalek come and attack the Jewish people? What, what, what exactly led up to that? So the Jewish people were attacked in a place called Rifidim. And the, uh, the commentaries explain that they were attacked because the word Rifidim is actually a, a acronym, is a shortened word. And it really stands for Rafu Yadehem Minatora which means that they were they weakened their hands from the Torah. They were being lackadaisical about the Torah. What happens? They were being lackadaisical about the Torah. Boom! Immediately Amalek came and attacked them. Okay? Immediately Amalek came and attacked them. Why? Because they were being lax. Because they were being lax. Now, Yisro said, there's something amazing about this relationship between God and the Jewish people. He is going to push them. God is going to push them. God will not take failure from the Jewish people. 
He will not tolerate, he will not countenance, countenance failure from the Jewish people. When they step out, he will throw them right back into line, even violently. But he will not tolerate unsuccess. He will not tolerate failure from this people. Now, let's take me, for example. Me, I'm, I'm a parent, right? And I taught. I taught for many years. I taught high school. One of my, my greatest experiences in my life, I taught in Yeshiva Darche Torah, the school in uh, Farakaway, New York, on Beach, uh, Beach 9th, Seagirt, um, I believe. I taught there for, um, for eight years. I taught there from 1997 to 2005. And it was one of my favorite experiences, really, it just it really formed me. It was a very formative experience. And actually, different time for a different story, but like it landed on my lap. Like Hashem sent me that job, like just totally min Hashemayim. I wasn't expecting it. Hashem said, this is going to be the best thing for you. And that job just landed on my head. Now, I taught there for eight years. I had lots of students. I love my students. I really did. And my students, I hope, love me. I still am in touch with some of them. You know what I never did? I never parented any of my students. You know, I would encourage them to do better, but like, I was not very punitive to them. I didn't like, I wasn't forceful with them. I'm a, probably a little bit more disciplinary with my own children because they're mine and I love them. And I deeply want them to be the most amazing versions of themselves. And if I see them stepping out of line, I'm going to bring them back into line. I, I don't do it violently. That's just not my style, Baruch Hashem. I don't do it violently at all. I don't yell at them. I don't degrade them. I don't say, you know, but I really let them know, like, I believe you can do better. And I'm expecting more out of you. I don't do that to other people's children. You could say I'm callous. I don't care. It's, it's not appropriate. It's, they're, they're not my children. If I'm sitting at a, back in the day, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a thing called a restaurant. And this thing called the restaurant, you would sit down and there would be like other people in the restaurant also. And you would sit down and you didn't have to wear a mask because you were eating. It was like a whole thing before COVID, whatever. So, you know, if I was at a restaurant with my children and my children were acting up and screaming or banging on their, you know, banging their forks on their, on their plate or whatever, I would discipline them. I would tell them like, hey, we're at a restaurant. There's other people eating here. You know, we can't, we can't do that. If the kid two booths over for me was acting up, am I going to discipline that kid? No, because it's not my business. It's not, I, and frankly, I don't care about that kid as much as I care about my child. I mean, let's be honest. I don't care about that kid as much as I care. Meaning there's two things. There's me wanting to have a quiet dinner. That's okay. That's neither here nor there. But there's me wanting my children. The reason why I discipline my children when we're at a restaurant and they're acting out or we're on a plane and they're screaming and yelling or whatever, and I tell them to be quiet and I discipline is because I want my children to be the right kind of people. I don't care so much about other people's children. Okay, call me cows. Again, it's natural. Yisro says, I see the splitting of the sea. I see that God will go to great lengths to protect these people. But I also saw the fight of Amalek, which was when they started falling off the wagon, Hashem pulled them into line pretty strongly, even pretty violently. But he let them know, like, don't fall off the wagon. I'm not going to let you. You're my child. I'm going to discipline you. There's going to be an immediate biofeedback mechanism. You slip, you're going to learn about it. You fall, you're going to be pushed back into line. I want to be part of that nation. Not because it's going to be easy for that nation. Other nations will have it much easier. They can do whatever they want. They can mess up again and again and again and again, and they won't be held accountable. But they're not going to be the greatest nation on this earth. 
the tiger mom, she will educate her children and she may be a little difficult on them, but they're going to be incredibly successful people and have a deep and close relationship with their mom. And many moms who just let their kids do whatever they wanted and whatever it was and yeah, whatever, and, and, and didn't care about their kids in that kind of way. And again, you can dispute whether the tiger mom did exactly the right thing or not. Was the right was that the right form of education or not? We can have a whole long discussion about pedagogical approaches for parenting. That's fine. That's not what I'm here to talk about. But I know this. I know that tiger mom really loved her kids. And she only accepted greatness from them. And she forced them to become great. And they became great. And now they're very, very close with her and very deeply appreciative to her. So my friends, that's the third idea. Yisro sees not just that Hashem protects the Jewish people by doing the splitting of the sea, but that when they mess up, when they step out of line, he brings them back into line. And he says, I want to be part of this nation that God has this immediate feedback mechanism to make sure they stay on their game, to make sure they stay tip, tip top, sharp, always doing the right thing. I want to be part of that nation. It may be a difficult nation to be joining. There may be a lot of pain and suffering, but it's worth it. Think about, think about people who join the Navy SEALs. Think about people who join the Navy SEALs. Do they join the Navy SEALs because they want to have it easy? They know what the training for Navy SEALs looks like. They're going to go through insane hardship. They're going to be swimming in freezing water. They're going to be marching day and night. The amount of, when you sign up for the Navy SEALs, you know off the bat that they are going to take everything out of you. And you know, because you heard from other people that the physical challenges of becoming a Navy SEAL are nothing compared to the mental challenges of being able to be a Navy SEAL. The majority of people will just ring out. They go to this training facility and, and all the abuse that they wreck on you and they, they hurl at you, you can just ring a bell and you're free. You're, you're not going to be part of the Navy SEALs, but you're free to go and you're all over. But the people who make it through, they, they chose this pathway, not because it was easy, but because it was right. And they wanted to be something great. Yisro says, I want to be part of this people, not because it's going to be easy. No, they're going to get attacked. They're going to be all kinds of suffering to them, but they're going to be great. And I want to be part of that. And that's what we are. Thank you all so much for coming. Shivan Panama Torah. This week's portion, we read about the giving of the Torah. The Torah is multifaceted. It has so many different approaches. We asked the question, why would Yisro come and join the Jewish people after seeing the Melchama of Amalek, the war of Amalek? We gave three answers. Answer number one was, if people keep coming after us, it must be we have something valuable. There's something in the tailor shop. I got to figure out what it is. I got to go join these people. Answer number one. Answer number two, if the people of the world could be totally afraid and, and respectful of the Jewish people, and then 30 days later come and attack us, that means that if you don't act on your inspiration, your inspiration is gone. So I'm inspired right now, says Yistro. I better go saddle up the horses and join the people, Jewish people right now. And the last answer, again, if God is going to be so close with us that he's going to constantly demand greatness out of us and hold us accountable when we're not great, that's going to be a difficult nation to be part of. But I want to be part of the Navy SEALs. I want to be the best of the best. I'm going to join that people. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining. And have a wonderful week and a great Shabbos. And with that, we can